Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. I wonder if you guys remember this old song. I'm going to try and sing it. My throat's a bit croaky. I wonder if I could get some water, please. Pastor E, Pastor P, you remember this one? Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His word is perfect, and all his ways are just. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His word is perfect, and all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness. Without injustice, good and upright is He. A God of faithfulness, without injustice, good and upright is He. Our Father, we, we praise you this afternoon because that is so true of you. You're a God of faithfulness, without injustice, good and upright are you, Lord, your light and in you is no darkness at all, and we ascribe greatness, not to make you great, but because you are great, and Father, when we see you as you are, really as you are, it causes us to see ourselves as we really are. And like Isaiah, Lord, this afternoon, I, along with, I'm sure my brothers and sisters, we cry out to you and say, Lord God, as we appreciate who you are, Lord God, as we look at your, the light of your glory, we say, Lord God, I am a man, we are men and women of unclean lips, and we dwell amongst a generation of those who have unclean lips, Lord Yet you give us the privilege to approach you. Thank you. And Lord God, would you please, as we approach you in your glory, in your word, work by your spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake and to his name and for his fame we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. And as you turn in there, welcome to the third part in our series in 1 John called Assure Assurance. Assure Assurance. And today's message is Assure Relationship. 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Have you ever seen the advert where there's this man who is under the impression that he's walking into a steamy sauna only to find out that he's actually walked into a steamy kitchen. <laughs> and then you see the camera cut to one side and you see Gordon Ramsay with this big old, I don't know, what do you call him? Chopper. What do you call it? Meat cleaver. And there's a cucumber there and the guy's sitting there nude and, and Gordon Ramsay goes with this cleaver and, and, and all the fellas wince. And then you've got the strap line, right? Or somebody says in the background, this man, he should have what? He should have gone to Specsavers. See, this man was under the impression that he was in a place that he thought was the right place, but it was actually in the wrong place. And I suppose with that in mind, I'd like for us to consider if we are like that gentleman in that we ask the question, does my thinking reflect reality? The man was in one place, the man thought he was in one place but was actually in another. How many of you know getting it wrong matters and the question is in light of our text do I know God and if I think I do can I be sure now how many of you know that we need to be clear on this issue now this whole chapter kind of breaks down into three sections we're not dealing with the whole chapter but the whole chapter breaks down into three sections that highlight three contrasts Those who talk contrasted with those who do. Verse 1 to verse 11. The second section is those who love the world contrasted with those who love the Father. That's verse 12 to 17. And then the third contrast is those who are anti-Christ contrasted with those who are for Christ. And that's verse 18 to 29. Today we're going to be looking at the first section. Those who just talk contrasted with or contrasted against those who do. Jesus said, there are many who honor me with their lips. Thank you, Sam. But whose hearts are far from me. They say one thing 
and do another. And in the context of this book, these all think that they're Christians. And the question is, do they actually have a sure assurance? Now, this letter is written by John, who was one of the literal disciples of Jesus, right? He saw... John, do you remember at, at the beginning of chapter one, we saw this? John saw Jesus visibly. John related to Jesus physically. John listened to Jesus audibly. He saw Jesus with his own eyes. He could reach out and touch him with his own hands. He actually heard the words of Jesus audibly. John saw and he walked and he talked with Jesus. Yet within John's own lifetime, there were those who were already at such an early stage. They were already misunderstanding Jesus and misrepresenting Jesus. They were saying one thing and then doing another. And all within a few years of Jesus actually being there. And some of these were leading other Christians astray by their error. And they were possibly, probably, alive to see Jesus in the flesh. Some of these individuals who were deceiving others. Yet within a few years, they'd begun to move away from Christian to anti-Christian. Now we hear the Apostle John mention antichrists numerous times throughout this short letter, right? And to make matters worse, these aren't even people that rise up from like another quarter. These are individuals who used to worship alongside John and all of the other believers in this church or in this group of churches. Now, this is not our text, but just glance back at verse 19 if you don't have a Bible. Verse 19 of 1 John chapter 2, and it says, it says, they went out, how? From us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that, that they are all, that they, are, they all are not of us. Now listen to the nature of their deception. They went out. These, are, this could have, these could have been family and friends, possibly, potentially. Listen to the nature of their deception. The ESV, the King James, and the New King James do a fantastic job here, where the other translations are not really helpful. So I don't know what you're looking at. But the ESV, verse 4 says, whoever says, if you see that, if you have that, you can see that. In verse 6, it also says, whoever says, and then in verse 9, same thing, whoever says. I don't know if you can see that in your manuscript, in your copyright. Other translations for verse 4, 6, and 9 say, the man who says, or he who claims, anyone who claims. I think sometimes what the translators do, they try to mix up the language so that it doesn't get monotonous. But we have literal translations that don't, that don't aim to do that. What they do is they give you the literal rendition of what is in the original. And the original is helpful. Because these three, these, three, these three points, these three things that highlight the nature of the deception are going to 
essentially make up our three points as we go through this text. Now John is arguing that if you say something, there should be an action that corresponds with what you say, which is fair enough, right? People here in the first century church are claiming to know the truth, although they have no commitment to keeping God's commandments, they're constantly living in immorality, and they're individuals whose lives are not characterized by love. And in this part of the letter, John doesn't want to merely hear words. He wants to see evidence. And if you make a claim, John's saying, you must be able to substantiate it. And these are the three claims. Verse four, if you claim as you say to know Christ, then there must be obedience to his commandments, i.e. fruit. Fruit that accords with the root. Verse six, if you claim to be united to Christ, that is you're walking with him, you ought to walk like him. Likeness to Christ. How can two walk together except they what? Be in agreement, right? There ought to be something about your gait. G-A-I-T, I believe. Something about your swagger that identifies you. Oh, I can see as I look at your life, as I look at the way you live, as I look at the way you walk, because that's all synonymous, right? Those are, those, are, those are synonyms for how you live your life. I look at how you live your life and there's something... <laughs> I look, I look at Je- I, can, I can see a similarity between you and, and Jesus. And in verse 9, if you claim to be living in the light, you must have love for your brothers and sisters. Now, those are the three false claims that are made by the false brethren. Then there are... Th- Also, three tests that will constantly come up in this book, two of which are going to appear in in today's text and will come up again. The first is the doctrinal test. That's not really coming up here, although it does, in a sense, but it's, it's more implicit than it is explicit. The doctrinal test. Do you believe? Then the moral test. Do you keep his commandments? And then the third test is the social test. Do you love the brethren? Okay, so let's start off by looking at the first claim to to know Christ. To know Christ. And to know Christ is to keep his commandments. Verse three. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Now listen to the change in tense, right? Verse three, I'll read it again. It says, and by this we know, that's present tense, right? By this we know that we have come to know, that's perfect tense, him. In other words, just put it in proper English, right? (laughs) There's a time in the past when we as Christians come to know him at our conversion, right? We're introduced to Christ. 
We may not know him that well, but we do know him. And progressively, we're going to get to know him. It's a substantial event that took place when? In the past. And it's an event that took place in the past that continues to affect us when? In the present. And if that conversion, past tense, was genuine, it will continue to bear fruit in the present. No doubt there will be periods when Christians break the commandments. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I've got both hands in the air, right? But they will be exactly that, periods or one-off events. Remember Moses? We were talking about it just this week. I think it was Harry that mentioned it when Moses struck the rock twice (laughs) when God said, speak to the rock, right? And for that reason, he never entered the promised land. He made a mistake, right? He dropped the ball. Because what he did was he misrepresented God to the people. Then you have David. Remember when he had his unfortunate incident with Bathsheba? If you were to look at David's life at that point, you'd have think, boy, ain't a saved bone in that brother's body. I mean, commit adultery and then you murder the, the woman's husband to get rid of the evidence. If you looked at him at that point, how many of you know that was a, that was a period of his life How about Peter? Remember when Peter dropped the ball all the time, didn't he? Thank God for Peter. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And remember when Peter denied Jesus, on the back of Peter's disobedience, Jesus asked him the question. Remember what he asked him? He says, Peter, he said, do you love me? Why would he ask that? Because he knows if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's like, Peter, what happened? And Peter, like three times, like, oh my gosh, heart bleeding. Lord, you know that I love you. And he did, didn't he? But notice, and we're going to come back to it in a minute, what what ought to be the basis for us keeping the commandments is what? It's love. Now, genuine Christians will stumble. They will fall. They will periodically break the commandments. Otherwise, then we'd be expecting every Christian to be perpetually perfect. See, now, the thing is, we aim at perfection. And that's the thing, that's the issue. We aim at perfection. I think it was Derek Prince who said, if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. We aim at perfection. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect can't get away from that but no one keeps this perfectly either in the pulpit or in the pew but are you pursuing perfection am I pursuing perfection I think Paul talks about pressing toward the mark of the high calling which is in Christ Jesus And there's also an expectation from God as outlined by John in verse one of this same chapter, right? This is the expectation. My little children, says John, I'm writing these things to you. That's that's his rationale to some degree. This part of his motivation for writing so that you may not sin. 
to the expectation. But if anyone does sin, thank God we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That was a real good place to say amen. See, we're not sinless, but we ought to sin less. May God help us. John Newton. You know, anyone familiar with John Newton? He's the brother that, that, that was a slave. Um, I can't even say he was a slave master. He was really in a transportation business, right? He, had, he owned ships that would transport slaves from West Africa over to the Caribbean and other places. And for years and years, that's what he did until God arrested him and revealed himself to him. And it was then that John Newton wrote the song. He said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. John Newton. It was him that said, he said, you know what? I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be, but by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. That's the testimony, I think, of a a genuine believer. Now, at the time of John's writing, there were competing, contradictory claims that suggested the believers at this time didn't need to keep the commandments. This was something that contradicted what John is communicating. And these people claim to have a deep and meaningful relationship with God. And obedience didn't factor as an important element, not in their lives. Did you know that there are actually people who attend churches today that feel the same way? They really believe that they don't have to keep God's commandments. And often they fall into two categories. You've got the first category who will blatantly tell you, you know what? I believe I can live with my partner and I can have sex even though we're not married. I used to hear it all the time in my culture and community. Like, we don't need to go down to no registry office. And I mean, that's Babylon system. And I mean, in the sight of God, me and my girl were married. She's my wife and I'm her husband. Until obviously they get fed up with each other next week and then they separate and they go find another husband and quote unquote wife, right? But some people believe that they don't need to keep the commandments. You've got others who bow down before a statue of Mary, who they say is a virgin, not just when she had Jesus, but she's a perpetual virgin. And they bow down in front of a statue and they pray to Mary. How many of you know that those are individuals who are in church, yet they blatantly break the commandments. That's the breaking of the second commandment. That's one group. Blatantly, overtly tell you straight. Then you've got another group that are not so blatant. They're more subtle, right? And this is the scary category because I think to some degree we all confine ourselves in it sometimes. They will say what, they will say what you want to what they know you want to hear. But they don't actually believe what they say in their hearts. Because they constantly, consciously will do things that contradict the commandments. 
constantly, consciously, and there are loads of examples, whether it might be getting drunk or hating others without reservation, you know, completely unforgiving and secretly lying and twisting the truth. Now, as I said, sometimes Christians temporarily will fall, like Pastor E said a couple of weeks ago, will fall into both of these categories. Where we blatantly say things that are off key or subtly would... And we make stupid and ungodly statements, don't we? And we, we do stupid and ungodly things and we find ourselves in stupid, sinful, ungodly circumstances. Isn't that true? But you see, for the believer, there's a conviction that comes, that overwhelms us. And it drives us to the cross. Where we confess those sins and thank the Lord, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. That's 1 John 1 verse 9. See, And that's the difference. The others, they don't confess their sin to God because they don't see it as sin. And therefore, they don't come to the cross, the place where sin was originally, ultimately paid. And that's the difference. Is there, a, is there a godly sorrow there that leads to repentance? Sadly, there isn't. You know, Proverbs 28 is helpful. Verse 13, it says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Lord, help us. Lord, help me. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Be like, we need to go to the Lord and confess those sins. But then also forsake them, turn away from them. And in that instance, there'll be mercy. There was no repentance on the part of these first century deluded antinomianists. Now, what is antinomianism? An antinomianist is one who holds that under the gospel dispensation of grace, the moral law is of no use or obligation because all you need is faith. Faith alone is necessary to salvation. No doubt, belief, or that is faith, is vital. But the true gospel says, repent and believe. Right? Repent and have faith. Faith without repentance is inconsistent. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, But what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, By no means. Another translation says, I should hope not. Another translation says, Certainly not. And the King James says, God forbid. They say, but we know, verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now this phrase is one that John uses frequently. Twelve times in his gospel, the gospel of, Matthew, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Six times here in his epistles, right, these are letters. And then six times in the other book that he wrote. What other book did John write? Last book of the Bible, book of Revelation. Six times he mentioned, and we saw this in chapter one, right? When Pastor E was breaking it down. 
Notice it's not keeping the commandments that leads to you knowing him. It's the other way around. It's knowing him that leads to you keeping his commandments. There's a great difference. This word know is literal and it's also metaphorical. So it's literal, right? To know. It means to to have knowledge. But it's also metaphorical. It's more than just having knowledge. It, 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 It means intimacy. Do you remember Adam in Genesis? It says, and Adam knew his wife. And here comes, is it Cain or Abel? Because he knew his wife. Here comes a baby. It's more than just him being able to recognize her or tell you a little bit about Eve and the day where she was created and formed. It talks about intimacy between him and her. You might remember hearing Paul saying about the Lord Jesus, oh, that I might know him. Now, obviously, it's not talking about physical sexual intimacy, but it's talking about intimacy, isn't it? It's talking about knowing him personally and extensively. He says that in Philippians 3 verse 10. It is knowledge about a person. It is that. But it's not just knowledge about a person. It's knowing intimately or not as the case may be. Matthew 7 Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who doesn't just talk, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, notice, I never knew you. There was was never a time when we actually had an intimate relationship. It It says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We saw it when we done 2 Timothy. You know, the Lord knows those who are his, right? Okay, but let those that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Here, they don't. So the Lord says, depart from from me because there's no intimacy and if you like as a byproduct they don't keep the commandments they might have spiritual works but Hebrews 6 says we have to repent of spiritual works we have to repent of our dead works because they can't do anything to help us Isaiah says our righteousness our good works are filthy rags before God. And Jesus goes on, he says, look, I I never knew you. And what identified and characterized you as individuals, you're workers of lawlessness. See? And, And it's you who practice lawlessness. It's not one off sin or a one off sin there. This is a lifestyle. And it's lawlessness. You see, they have no regard for what? The law or the commandments. They don't keep the commandments. It's so cons- the Bible is so consistent. Verse 4 of our text. You shouldn't have to turn to any of the verses. I mean, unless you're a scholar. 
you know what I mean? And you can find the verses, or you've got an iPad, I don't know. You've got Bible text on, on your Bible software on your phone. But I'm going to try and just keep your nose in First John 2 and put the verses up. Have a look with me at verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Thank God for time to, to repent and to be able to say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me, I'm a, you know, I'm a liar. Forgive me. And help me, Lord, to keep your, help me to love you and then keep your commandments. You ever heard of a guy called Friedrich Nietzsche? Or Nietzsche? He's an atheist philosopher. How many of you know this guy's on the other team, right? He's like, you know what? He says, Christians need to look more redeemed if they want me to believe in their redeemer. That should cause all of us to feel ashamed, right? Verse five of our text, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. You see that theme of love? Can you see what the motivation for obedience is supposed to be? It's supposed to be love, which can only be based on knowing an individual, right? Namely Jesus, intimately. That's why when people say, oh, I met this girl and I really love her. How long have you known her? Oh, about a month. Well, you love what you know about her that you've discovered in a, in a month. But it's a bit quick to say that, boy, I'm in love. I mean, what does that even mean, to be in love? To fall in love? When love is really, love is a commitment. Real love, like I, you know, I say it all the time, we say it all the time. I say it to my daughter all the time. Forget anybody that comes to you and tell you about how they love you. And how they want to be with you. You know what I mean? You only know if somebody really loves you if he's, if he's, if, Ben, was it last week? Uh oh, hey. Now that's love. That's love right there. When a man steps you and he gets down on one knee and he presents you with a, with a rock, you get me? Then we can begin to say, wow, <laughs> maybe this guy actually loves you because I mean, if you know, love is a commitment. Love ain't a feeling. That's infatuation. I can't eat and I can't, that's infatuation. That ain't love. Real love says, I'm prepared to stand up in front of witnesses and not just communicate my love to you, but ratify that love. A lie, bruv? In public, legally, sign the documents and be prepared to make that commitment and say, I do. I, I do, I do, I do. I make a commitment to have and to hold for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. In sickness and in health, yeah, in sickness and in, for better or worse, until death do us part. Amen, bro? That, you know what? Don't chat to me about nothing. Unless... When it comes to love, unless it's in those terms, I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear it. Amen. And <laughs> Amen. Amen. But thank God, man. I'll just make this real quick. It's like Pastor P, Pastor E. I think we tallied up. Like I don't know if we got it on. Like 
I don't know if it's out there verbally, but just to say it's, it's a blessing. I think 34 weddings approximately in 10 years. You know what I mean? That says to me, you know what I mean? That's, that's what, 68 people that know what it means, you know what I'm saying, to love, at least in terms of the category of marriage. <clears throat> and, you know, obviously we're talking about obedience that comes out of love. When you understand that, then you understand how marriage works. And I mean, we ain't got time to get into that. And that's what always mashes me up. So, can you see what the motivation for obedience is? It's love, which can only be based on knowing the individual. That's why you have to take your time. Knowing the individual and particularly in that instance, we're talking about Jesus and knowing him intimately. And how many of you know, the love that we actually eventually do have for Jesus, it didn't start with us. Scripture says that we love, we love him because he loved us first. And he showed us what real love is. And you want to know what real commitment is? Then look at the Lord Jesus who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And he ain't just talking to physical death to us part. He's talking about for eternity. First John chapter four, verse 19. And notice that there's a developmental process in regards to God's love being perfected in us. Another translation says, made complete or matured. It's God's love progressively being developed in the life of the genuine believer who is growing in God's love. And it's also the place where, where confession, that is what we say and actions, what we do, meet perfectly. Really, real obedience comes out of relationship. That's why the prodigal son was so mash up. Sit down in the pig pen, raw man. Look at, look at me, I'm a waste. Look at me, look at my life, mash up. And all, all he could do is reflect on the goodness of his father. You know what I mean? He, he loved him right up to the moment he said, I've had enough. Remember, the father never ran him out, you know. I think, there is, I think there's a time to run them out. <laughs> but the father never ran, and my point is, he left choosing to go do his own thing. But he, was, he sat there and he thought, man, my father was so good to me. I wonder. You know what? I don't even have to wonder. I know that I can go. And he goes back. And the text says that, as, as, as Neil reminded us a couple of weeks ago, the text says he didn't just go back and say, sorry, dad. He sat in a pig pen before he moved and he said, you know what? I've sinned not just against my father. He said, I've sinned against heaven and against my father, let me go back. And then he goes back and he repeats those words. And as you know, the father ain't even listening. He's just so glad to see him. Saying, what motivated? Love. See, real obedience comes out of relationship. It's, it's when you understand the goodness of God that you actually come to a point where you repent. You're like, what? Well, how could you even consider to be so good in my direction when I'm so, so evil? And you're like, what? See, we ought not to try to be converting people on the basis of you must do this and you must do that. 
That's legalism. We need to help people to see how good God is. We need to help people to see how, how much Jesus. We need to share with people the gospel, the good news. I know that's what God, I was like, what? That news is too good to be true. But it is. And you know, there are levels of intimacy. Think about this, yeah? With regards to the Lord Jesus, and, and you can see this even throughout the whole of the Bible, and I'll give you some examples. <clears throat> You can come into a relationship with God as a servant. And how many, how many of you know? You can be a servant, right? And I don't know, work for, let's say you work for Richard Branson. How many of you know you work for Richard Branson, even just as a servant? I don't know, you're a chauffeur. You're blessed. Mad perks. You know what I mean? Now, just being a servant of God means mad perks. I mean, you think of a regular servant, the fact that he's a servant, he's getting to eat. And I'm saying he's getting to sleep somewhere comfortable. He's got a roof over his head. Oh my gosh. To be a servant of God is a blessing. It's a privilege. And Luke 17 verse 10 talks about the aspect of of our relationship with God. We're unprofitable servants. But then you have another level of relationship, which is friendship. And I mean, you know, sometimes a master can be friends with with a servant. That's what happened with Joseph and Potiphar. Friends. You're elevated above that of a servant, and now you're friends. In John 15, verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Hey, that's promotion. Remember when, remember when Abraham, I love this. Again, we talked about this last week. Remember when Abraham um, had an interface with God? And God turns up one day, and he has this conversation with Abraham. And the Lord basically had come down to see if what was going on in Sodom was really going on. I mean, not that he didn't know, right? And he comes down. It's a bit like God saying, Adam, where are you? Of course, God knew where Adam was. God knows what's going on in Sodom. But he comes down, right? And and he's having this interface with Abraham. And they finish having a conversation. And the Lord walks away and the Lord goes, hmm. Am I going to go and do, am I going to go and torch Sodom and not? have a conversation about it with my friend Abraham and the Lord turns around and he goes back he says Abraham hear what and the Lord begins to have this conversation with Abraham where he turns around he's like oh Lord really you're going to do that the Lord's like yep he's like all right but Lord if there's 50 righteous would you spare it for and you know as you know the story goes but you see the interface and it wasn't even Abraham that instigated it it was God who can I go do this and not chat to my brother chat to my brother you know you mean Servant to friend. I mean, they're galaxies apart with reference to God. I mean, if you're my friend, it probably don't mean much, right? But, and then you can move from servants to friends to children. Imagine, and we ain't got time. But how many of you know that, that God has adopted those of us who have turned away from our sins and have put our trust in Christ as sinners though we may be and he's adopted us into his family how do you describe that step up Ephesians chapter 1 but then there's a next level oh my gosh now you know I love my kids like I know most parents love their kids but I don't love my kids like I love my wife 
I have a different relationship. My kids, them, I love them and I thank God for them. But how many of you know I'm a steward over them? You know what I mean? And reading a book at the moment, man, is kind of mashed me up. I love them. But the kind of love that I have for my wife, and at some point they're going to be leaving. But the only time I'm leaving my wife is when I die. And hopefully the only time she's going to leave me is for the same reason. We got a different kind of relationship. And does that not describe just the height of our relationship with Jesus, with God, because we are now the bride of Christ? We're the potential wife of Christ. And in Revelation 19, verse 7, it talks about the time when the marriage supper of the. Because how many of you know we're, we're, we're betrothed? To Christ, I mean, it's a heart. It's, it's yes, virtually, it's an impossible bond to break, really. You know what I'm saying? But it's gonna be, it's gonna be again ratified on that day when we're married to Him. And I'm saying, at the marriage, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, it says, His bride, His wife, has made herself ready for that marriage. Now, what kind of relationship is that? I'm just trying to show you the different levels of intimacy with regards to knowing Jesus. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Right, we just looked at that. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. There we have it. A sure assurance based on a sure relationship. A second point. A second point is to be linked to Christ is to look like Christ. Here we come to our second point, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him, notice, whoever what? Says. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. See our repeat, repeat, repeated phrase again. We saw that in verse 4, here in verse 6, and coming up again in verse 9. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. See, verse 6 is where we get the common phrase, walk the talk. Don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk, innit? Don't just say you love him and not keep his commandments, our first point. And here, point 2, don't say you abide in him when you look nothing like him. In his gospel, John says, you're so linked to Christ, you should look like Christ. Pastor E did this. You may remember, just before we started our series in 1 John, listen to the repetition of the word abide and what that ought to look like. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that's supposed to be connected to me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch itself cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is, she is that bears much fruit. 
for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see that? As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love, innit? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. How many of you know Jesus kept the commandments of the Father because he loved him? These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. See what kind of, you see what gets Jesus joyful and that your joy may be full. Now we're gonna come back to John 15 in a moment. Metaphorically speaking, Jesus is the vine and the Christian is the branch. That means all that the branch is comes from where? ABC, right? Comes from the vine. Therefore, the branch cannot look like anything other than the vine. Because one affects, one impacts and imparts and influences the other. How are you going to say that you're a branch, but yet you don't look nothing like the vine that you're supposedly connected to? Brings us to our third point. Loving like Jesus. Loving like Jesus. Look at verse 7. As John continues to connect his thoughts back to what Jesus had said earlier in his gospel. We just read a bit of it in John 15. Verse 7 and 8, notice, are a little bit cryptic. We're going to get Krypton Factor on you, right? Verse 7. Beloved, obviously, writing to Christian believers, right? I'm writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now, now he's going to seem to say the opposite. Watch verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. I'm like, is it old or, or is it new? Well, it's both. The old commandment is what? The second of the Ten Commandments given in Exodus chapter 20. Right? Which is what? Love your neighbor, how? As you love yourself. Now note that. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So you're only, the only love you're going to have for your neighbor is the kind of love that you've got for yourself. And there's loads of people that get out of that. Well, I don't really love myself. The old commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. That's the old. So what's the new commandment? It's the same, but um, it's different. John 15, verse 12 through 13 and verse 17, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Okay, we heard that before, but how? Oh, not like you love yourself. I want you to love one another, and that's particularly speaking to Christians, loving Christians. I want you to love one another as I loved you. Oh, okay. Next levels. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. 
Verse 17, these things I command you. It's a reiteration of the second commandment notched up to another level. These things I command you so that you love one another. The new commandment takes the old commandment to another level. How many of you know football fans love football? As long as they support the same team. Football fans in the north of England find it hard to appreciate football fans in the south and vice versa. Manchester fans, they don't get on with London fans. (laughs) But then there are, (laughs) resisting the temptation, but then there are fans in the north who are at odds with fans in the north, let alone with fans in the south. You have United fans versus City fans, right? And they all come from Manchester. And the same is true, we can't get away with it. Those of us that are London football supporters. The same is true, I said I wasn't going to go over there. And the same is true for London, right? You've got North London fans versus North London fans. You've got North London fans that hate North London fans. I've been to, to, to some of the games and heard some of the songs. And they're not praise songs. <laughs> Arsenal versus Tottenham. And I even heard recently during this last transfer window, who knows when you're going to listen to this, 2013, right? This last transfer window, the Arsenal fans were actually fighting against Arsenal fans in the terraces. Pro-Wenger fans versus anti-Wenger fans Literally coming to blows in the terrace. That goes to show you that. Yet a few weeks later, the same fans (laughs) that are punching up one another, they're jumping up and hugging one another like yesterday after eight straight wins (laughs) in terms of a winning streak. Now that's football. Then you have issues that are closer to home. I hope I never lost you there, ladies. Family members who love one another one minute, then a situation arises that causes conflict. Even to the point of coming to physical blows sometimes. Men physically abusing women. I mean, the same man that's supposed to be loving his wife, physically abusing her. You've got parents violently abusing children. You've got siblings abusing one another. You've even got children that will physically abuse their parents. This then brings us to the spiritual family, the church. Are we just as guilty sometimes of lacking in love for our own spiritual brothers and sisters? Black versus white. You've got different denominations. Armenian versus Calvinist, etc., etc., etc. And to take it up another level, could we even be guilty of not loving those in our own congregations? Forget about this church against that church. I see on sometimes on one street you've got two churches. In Lee, there's two churches right next door to each 
other. What is that about? But forget churches against churches. How about Christians in congregations at odds with one another? A place where we're all supposed to potentially believe the same thing. We're all supposed to be on the same team. How about drilling down even further? I mentioned husbands not loving their wives. And I I used it in the wrong context. Because that was just natural, normal families. In a normal family, husband's supposed to love your wife. I shouldn't have to draw for the Bible and slap you in your face and tell you that, right? But then, in the category of Christians, Christian families, husbands not loving their wives. Wives not loving their husbands. Jesus says, Paul says about marriage with reference to Jesus, how are husbands supposed to love their wives? Getting back to our point. Supposed to love your wife, brother. Like G- not like you love yourself. But yes, because it says in Ephesians 5, you love them like you love your own body, but comma, supposed to love them like Jesus loves the church and gave himself for her. That's a good word for for Ben and for other brothers and sisters who are potentially in the process of getting married. So you know what you're getting into. Sam. too late for you, fam. (laughs) It's all good, though. That's the type of love. Jesus says, Christians need to be different. Jesus doesn't say that we ought to just love as we love ourselves. He takes it up a notch. He says, we Christians ought to love one another as he loves us. Furthermore, he says that we ought to love our enemies. How about that? And I can't love her because you know what? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. For real, for real, fam, if I ever tell you. Hmm. All right then. So let's say I may not necessarily be, be able to get you on that one. But that is love her like you love it. How about loving your enemies? Where you just described her, sounds like she's your enemy. Guess what? You got no excuse. We got no excuse. The Lord shouldn't, it shouldn't get to the point where we have to say that. I mean, shouldn't get to that point. Imagine having to say, fam, you need to, you need to love your wife. And you know what that says to me? It says to me there ain't nothing new under the sun. Like the state of affairs today, which is, I mean, that, typifies the state of affairs today. It's, I mean, Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. How many of you know there ain't nothing new under the sun? And, you know, when it comes to counseling, especially marriage counseling, the only thing we're going to do is send you back to the Bible. You know what I mean? That's all we can do. And I know, you know what I'm saying? I don't want to minimize difficulty in relationships. Come on now, you know that's not what I'm saying. We know that there's drama sometimes and it's difficult and it's, challenge, it's challenging. But if we love him, 
we're going to keep his commands. And it's not about whether the person deserves it or not. You know what I mean? It's not about whether I feel like it or not. There's bigger issues at stake. Jesus says, love your enemies. And then he showed us how to do that, didn't he? When he went to the cross. And he's there hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. Not, I'm a get, fam, I'm a get, I'm, when I tell you I'm a get you when I come back. He didn't say that. He said, Father, forgive them. And he had all right to say that. Couldn't have wronged him if he did. And he shows us how to love our enemies by his sacrificial death on the cross for his enemies. In the middle of verse 8, <clears throat> John begins to go back to the light and dark example that he gave initially in chapter 1. He says, which is true, middle of verse 8, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and a true light is already shining. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is actually still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for tripping over and stumbling because he can see where he's going because he's walking in the light. You evidently got blinkers on. You're evidently blind like John Newton and possibly need salvation. Or at least, as Peter says, is it in his second epistle, is it Second Peter chapter 1 or First Peter chapter 1, where Peter says, we can as Christians get to the point where we're actually short-sighted, where we don't even realize that we've been forgiven of our own previous sins, like coming like you don't remember where you're coming from, coming like you don't remember the gutter where God found you or found me. Now, man, and there's a blindness there. Are we going to say, I, I, can't love my, I can't love my brother? Time is against me. If you do, then you got. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. Wow. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. How many of you know, I prayed it at the beginning, God dwells in unapproachable light. And that's a paradox. Because it's true and it, and it ain't true. A big aspect of being in the light, walking in the light, means the ability to now see things as they really are. Unlike my man who thought he was in the steam room, the sauna, when he was in the kitchen. It's being able to see things as they really are. Spots, blemishes and scars. Not primarily in others, but guess in guess. But in me, in ourselves. And, and then, you see, that's what the light does, isn't it? Everything gets exposed in the light. Right? In the light. Like Adam and even the garden. And, and then appreciating that these stains, imagine, if you're, if you're a mature Christian, I know you're going to say, you're going to dig this. I, don't know what, I know you're going to appreciate this. You, you appreciate that the stains that are now coming up that are being exposed by the light, they were always there. What were we like before we 
were saved, before we came into the light, when we were groping around in the darkness. Oh my gosh. We were so lost. It was, I, was it Ray, Rick Godwin? Rick Godwin says, look, before we come to Christ, you are in a, in a dark room with no windows, with the light switched off, and you're a blind man trying to find trying to find a light switch. And it's even worse than that because we're, we, were so, we were so deep in the depths of darkness that we didn't even realize that we were even lost. That's how, that's how dark and blind we were. And it's, when we step into the light now, we begin to come to that light and we approach that unapproachable light of God's glory and his truth it's like, oh my gosh, we begin to see what we're really like. And that stuff was, oh, that, that speaks volumes to me about the love of God. Lord, I've been, Lord, I'm like 25 years I've been a Christian nearly. And I'm seeing stuff come out in my life now that makes me hang my head in shame. And to know that the Lord knew that it was there 25 years ago. Talk about the love of, talk about the love of God. Talk about real love. See, if you think you're aware of, if you think that you were aware of your sin when you got saved, (laughs) wait until you get saved. But then wait until you get saved. You know, there's three types of, three aspects to our salvation. It's like you see your sin when you got justified, you're like, oh my gosh, Lord, and you really want to forgive me. Thank you, Jesus. But then as you, progress through the process of sanctification, then you're like, oh my gosh, there's more. <laughs> I thought I dumped the, like, you know what I'm saying, the, 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 the refuse bag, the rubbish bag. I thought I dumped the trash bag at the cross. I still got, there's a chick track where it shows two sinners and they've just, they just got odors. Come, you, you might have seen the chick track just stink. And we still do, don't we? That's why we need that cleansing. See, but as you're sanctified, you see this stuff. But imagine when we get glorified, you know what I mean? I mean, it's at that point, thank the Lord, for the last time we can look back at our sinful state and it will be done. But when we're there and we look back, our sin is going to look worse then than it does now. As we draw closer to that light, our flaws, our spots and blemishes become more apparent. And it does two things. It highlights our sinfulness we begin to become more aware of that. But then it also encourages our hearts, doesn't it? Because God calls us to walk with him in the light, in the light of that. Wow. Despite our sinfulness. It's like going back to Eden without the fear of being kicked out. Even when you sin, even when we sin. Walking, <clears throat> walking like it says Adam did. Walking with God. God's people, that's us, in Christ, under God's rule. Three things. To really know Christ is to keep his commandments. Two, to be linked to Christ is to look like Christ. And three, taking love to another level like Jesus. May God help us to live the way Jesus lives 
walk the way Jesus walks and love the way Jesus loves. This is true for those who have a sure relationship on the basis of the fact they have sure assurance. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, the scripture says that our hearts are wicked and deceitful. Lord, you were really actually serious when you had that written. And it's only as we get closer to the light that we really begin to appreciate that. Lord God, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Only Jesus. Father, there are potentially brothers and sisters here, Lord, including myself, that fall into those categories, Lord. Fall into those categories. Lord, we don't live there, but we drop the ball. And I thank you, Lord, as much as this letter is searing, it's really hard and it completely and utterly exposes our sinfulness in no uncertain terms Lord at the same time like a double edged sword the other side Lord we see your amazing grace to the point where we can come sin laden sin ridden sin riddled and we can come and confess our sins as believers and, and get further cleansing. Get rid of those spots and blemishes and, and be like that bride in Revelation 19 that steps up at the wedding feast completely, utterly. Lord, just what bride wants to walk down the aisle with spots and blemishes on her dress? And it's hard to understand, Lord, that We are forgiven and we have been cleansed. But Lord, we're still in the process of having to confess our sins and to receive cleansing. Father, I do pray for us, myself included, that you'd help us. Lord, as you challenge us on all of these things. Lord, that we would, that we'd repent. Lord, that we would confess our sins to you that we'd be honest and we wouldn't front and we'd say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm a hypocrite, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. I'm a hypocrite, Lord Jesus. And I'm overwhelmed that you still love me. Please forgive me, Lord. And Father, I suspect that there are going to be those who are possibly here today that are not on your team. They're not a servant, They're not your friend. They're not your children. And they're not potentially going to be married to you as a part of the church, the bride of Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here today, Lord God, would you please speak to their hearts? Would you open their heart? Lord, would you take them by the hand and bring them into the light? For many of us, Lord, we know what that transition looked like. We were in darkness and you translated us. You, you transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and you brought us in the, into the kingdom of 
your dear son into the kingdom of light. Lord, would you do that for someone today? By your grace. They don't deserve it. Like none of us in here deserve it. This place is a hospital full of sick people. Lord. In the name of Jesus, Father. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.